to another episode of Music the Lifeblood where we usually like to do something old, something new. I'm your very humble host, Dustin. This is an extra ultra mega special edition of Music the Lifeblood. Why? Because it's part two of Music the Lifeblood's conversation with Spot. For those not in the know, Spot is an accomplished multi-instrumentalist versed in all facets of the musically avant-garde. He's also a photographer, which, by the way, check out his photo book, Sounds of Two Eyes Opening, documenting his time in the skate and punk rock scene in Hermosa Beach through the late 70s and early 80s. Spot was also the in-house producer and engineer for the punk rock powerhouse SST Records from 1979 to 1985, producing amazing albums from Black Flag, The Minutemen, The Misfits, and many, many more. He's got an impressive resume and music lifeblood couldn't be more thrilled to have had Spot on the show. But before that, I want to let everyone know that this episode of Music of the Lifeblood is brought to you by one of the best Midwestern record stores I've ever been to. Indie CD and Vinyl, located at 806 Broad Ripple Ave in the happening Broad Ripple neighborhood of Indianapolis, Indiana. Staffed with people that are ready to help you hunt for all of your vinyl and CD needs, check them out on Facebook and at www.indiecdandvinyl.com. Make sure you spell it I-N-D-Y. Do it. Indie CD and Vinyl, located at 806 Broad Ripple Ave in the happening Broad Ripple neighborhood of Indianapolis, Indiana. Staffed with people that are ready to help you hunt for all of your vinyl and CD needs. Check them out on Facebook and at www.indiecdandvinyl.com. And make sure you spell it I-N-D-Y. Do it. Now, let's talk about part two of Music the Lifeblood's conversation with Spot. Just a little producer's note. Spot and I spoke for an entire afternoon. We took several breaks and a transition between those breaks, you're going to hear this sound. Don't panic, because it's all part of the show. Now, let's get to it. We start with Spot mid-thought regarding how badass most right guitars are. Yeah, well, most right, they kind of... I don't, I don't know if they actually copied it. I think they copied the, uh, the, the, uh, the design of the strap body, and they just kind of... Re- it kind of made it a reverse. But it was very, it was very, uh, it was very kind of beat art, humorous take on the electric guitar. Hmm. It was totally cool. That I'd look at it and I'd say, "That's really strange," but that's a cool guitar. I I played a few of them. And, oh man, Mo's rights so cool. I'd always wonder. I was always kind of curious why. Johnny from the Ramones ended up with a most right. It just didn't, it never seemed to make sense to me. Well, I bet it was economics. Uh, I mean, there was a time in the 70s when, you know, most right was not a popular guitar brand. They were popular in the 60s. In the 70s, they weren't. Uh, and by the late 70s, they really weren't. And more than likely, he got the thing for a song. He probably got it for like 50 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> At a music store, just because they wanted, they wanted to clear space. I mean, there were, I mean, God, there was, there was a time when you could buy, I mean, you know, guitars that are going for thousands of dollars now, you know, you can, you could, you know, you could get them for like anywhere from 100 to 300, and, and they were fine instruments, you know, and I mean, I mean, look at Sonic Youth. They bought a whole bunch of, you know, Jaguars and Jazz Masters, and mm-hmm. there was a time when no one, no one wanted them, so they were, you know, I was seeing them for 150 200 bucks, day in, day out, with case, you know? That's weird. I was, did you ever get a chance to work with Sonic Youth? Not directly, but uh, I, 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 I worked with Steve Shelley before he was in Sonic Youth. Okay, all right. But, but he was, um, uh, what was it, the Crucifix? Yeah, yeah, he, he was in the Crucifix, and I, I, I recorded an album with them. I always thought once, I mean, just the, the combination of Thurston and Lee in that band is so, 
interesting. I know they get kind of dumped. They get lumped into the art rock, you know, garage punk sort of, you know, label. But to me, they always struck me as just a almost like a like a working man's progressive band. I don't I don't I don't always know how to describe them. They but they never struck me as straight up punk rock in that sense. Well, I, I, I guess they weren't, and, you know, I, I you know, in, in their situation, punk rock is really a, a, you know, an unfortunate description, you know, or designation. <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't, at the first, I didn't, Sonic Youth was a band I did not get, you know. Oh, really? I heard, okay. I, well, I heard what they did, but it, 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 it when they when they first came around. Well, first of all, I'm I'm very skeptical of anything that a lot of people, or maybe I should specify, hip people, you know, scare quotes, <laughs> uh, suddenly are talking about and saying how great it is. I'm very skeptical of that. So, you know, people was what. People would push Sonic Youth at me, and I never really had a chance to explore them from my own terms without someone, you know, defining something and saying, "Oh, you've got to like this." Sure. Uh, sure, sure. So I, I, I actually, in the early days, I actually turned off of Sonic Youth, but specifically for that re- for that reason, you know. Um, I mean, I nowadays it's like I, I just I just think they're great, you know. Hmm. I un- I understand entirely why Neil Young took a liking to them. <laughs> <laughs> so why why do you think you know you? Uh, I mean, you're pretty set, you know, as far as you can pretty easily identify. I like that. I don't like that. You know where what. What was the impetus to to flick the switch the other way for him? Well, I have because I, I had a, I had a chance to. Um, I think one of the big big things was when I when I finally had a chance to see him live. Um, they 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 came to Austin and played at Liberty Lunch, which was a uh, big kind of. I guess at that point it would be called a semi outdoor venue. Uh, and it was back before, you know, Austin went on its great downhill slide. Uh, and, and, you know, so I, I got a chance to see him live and, and, and get an idea as to what it was they were doing. I understood what they were doing and had a chance to talk to them, talk to them. And, you know, it, it, it made that's when it really started making sense for me, and that would have been like about, oh God, might have been around eighty nine, ninety, mm. something like that. Yeah, but see, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm mean, like, like I don't buy records, and I, I'm not someone who I, I, I've got to listen to it from the CD or the vinyl or something. I like, I like to just discover it from where it happens to be, you know. And, sure, sure. And, 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 and there it was again. I got a chance to see him live, and, and it made it totally, completely made sense to. Do you think being able to be exposed to the actual band, whether it's in a live setting or getting to know them as people, has affected the way that you digest music at this point? To where it's almost like, well, the music's cool, but I got to meet them to to know how I'm going to feel about them. I don't. I don't think I have that prerequisite, but I, I think. I mean, I think. I think that's how I like it. Okay, you know, there's there's one thing I realized about punk rock early on is that punk rock is a lot like opera because if you okay, opera is a very uh, sophisticated form of music and theater. And it doesn't make, it, it, you know, singing in other languages, blah, 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 on and on and on. You're not going to get it until you really, until you know the story. You have to know the story of 
the opera to really, really get it, okay? Punk rock, <laughs> when there were suddenly all these bands, some of them great, some of them horrible, some of them, you know, all the ones in between, there was, there was a point where if you knew the band, you know, and it was it got down to a very local level. You know, if, if if you knew the band and the people doing it and why they were doing it that way, you got it. You know, it didn't you, you didn't you didn't have to be you didn't have to have a mohawk or something. You could be, uh, you know, you could be some dorky fifteen-year-old guy or girl just learning how to play an instrument, and you get up on stage and maybe you. Maybe you make a fool of yourself, but you you go through it, you know. If you know that story, hey, that's a good band. They're doing something. The way things were happening around SST, did you ever have someone put a piece of paper in front of you and say, okay, this is what we're doing, I need you to sign it and say that you're okay with it? Or was it all just kind of handshake and a, a verbal agreement, that sort of stuff? Yeah. It was it was more hand it was more handshake verbal agreement type of stuff you know there were some things that were uh, where something was put in writing but for the most part no we were just all kind of you know we we were just all kind of flying into you know into the into battle zones and hoping we came out the other end intact you know sure. Have you been in contact with Henry or Keith about about anything? Because they seem to kind of be the ones kind of at the forefront of of pursuing this stuff. And I think Henry's really advocated for, you know, people like Dez and Chuck, you know, Ron and, you know, all those people that they feel like those people worked and they deserve to be compensated for their work. And they have mm-hmm. they have yet to have been compensated for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well, I... I- I have I haven't talked to either of those two people about that specifically. Okay, I've had right. con- I've had contact with both of those guys over the past couple of years. I mean, uh, a few years back, I went to see Henry in um, Madison. He did a he did a show. I hadn't seen or talked to the guy for almost about thirty years. Okay. Okay. There, I mean, there, there was a time when, yeah, I'd say we were probably not on the best of terms with each other. That's all in the past. That's all done. It, it was, it, you know, like when I got together, it was so fucking cool hanging out with him and talking to him, man. It was great. Uh, Keith, on the other hand, contacted me a little while back. He's got his book. That's, I guess it's out now. What is it? Um, My Damage? Yeah, I think you you had a, he had asked you for some photos, right? Yeah, yeah, he 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 wanted to use a couple of my photos in the book and and he contacted me directly, email. And I was just like I was thrilled. I said, "Fuck yeah." And I I, I did everything possible. I I I I got I got him the photos he he wanted. I was so I was happy. I was happy to do it. So yeah, um you know, that those are the kind of things. Those are the kind of areas I like, where it's like, okay, we've we've all had this experience. Hey, let's share it. <laughs> sure, sure. I think um, there's, uh, I believe it was a photo of Keith st- standing by like multiple stacks of. Uh, they look yep. like they look like beer cans, right? Budweiser. This but okay, it was Budweiser. What what's what's uh, what's the story behind the photo? What was going on? Oh, that was, um, I was in San Francisco. We went up, it was, it was like late 1979. The band had a, it was, Heath was still in the band, Black Flag, that is. Had this, they had to play a show up in San Francisco at the, the Mabuhe, I think it was. And I went up there with them. And, uh, you know, I was just taking pictures. And this was some club that, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but a, a club in San Francisco that were, 
you know, they were friends with the band. We stopped by for some reason, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I guess they were getting ready to open or have some big show. So they had all that beer. And Keith was like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually, an, there, there's a shot of him in my book with those beer cans. Right. Yeah. This, the, the one, the one that he's got. See, I he wanted to use the one that I had in my book. I said, no, 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 use use one of these other ones. There was like about four or five shots I got of them. That I said, use one of these other ones. Then there's no there's no copyright problem, and you've got an exclusive, you know. So yeah, no, it was it was a it was a it was it was a fun little uh, fun little thing for me to to, to contribute those. You experience, you know, you have your relationship with with some of these people you know, 30, 40 years ago, whatever the case is. And when you're reintroduced to them now, do you, do you feel like the person you knew then is a, you know, for instance, is Keith Morris a direct, can you draw a direct line between the two people you've met Keith Morris then and Keith Morris now, or do you notice, you know, life experiences have changed people, you know, drastically. Do you feel like they're still the same person? That's hard to say, I because mean, I haven't had any face-to-face contact with Keith, and God, it, that's, it's been ages, I, I think over 20, 25 years. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that if we, we ran into each other, yeah, we, we, it, would, it would be fine. We'd have a lot of shit to talk about. Sure. Um, so, yeah, all I can relate to is the person who I knew back then and what I saw them go through to this point. So, um, yeah, I mean, in that sense, yeah, it's the same person. You know, that business with that business with all the hair, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. that, that's just me. <laughs> Good one. I'll I, I tell you, you know, generally I've found that most people from the old days, uh, if, if we if we shared a a genuine experience with, generally we have we have things to talk about and, and, and any any issues we had with each other, they just seem to not be there. You know, I'm not saying it's universal, but you know, most most people I from from the, from the past. I get along with them. I can, I can hang with them for a little bit. You sure. know, sure. there's some, there's some people, there's some people I can't, but you know, it mm. is what it is. Raymond Pettibone, mm-hmm. Greg's, Greg's brother. You know, obviously he had a big hand in uh, the visuals of SST and Black Flag. Obviously, what was your, what was your relationship like with Raymond? Did you see him much? Was there a lot of interaction? Well, back then, yeah, I saw him a lot. We didn't really... I wouldn't say we were close friends or anything. He was just always kind of off to the side, doing what he's doing, and, you know, we we, we, we didn't really... You know, every once in a while, we'd have some... Dis- we'd, we'd talk about stuff, but, you know, I, 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 I would... You know, I didn't really interface with him all that much. Art, Artistic-wise, he has a illustration style that's, you know, one of the most unique I've ever seen, um, at least. Mm-hmm. You know, was there any thoughts? You know, because you're, I mean, you're obviously jacked into, you know, the, the artistic part of your brain and things like that. Was that, you know, were you intrigued by Raymond's output? I was I was totally intrigued by his work. I, I thought that uh, I always thought that Raymond's work was pretty brilliant because I mean it would I mean his stuff really it, it would it would it would make you uncomfortable to look at his stuff. Sure, um, and that's what you know. I, I guess I don't know was was it was was it Woody Guthrie who said you know an artist's job is to comfort the. Uh, uh, well, you know, comfort the the. It's more like you know, comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. That that kind of thing. So it was <laughs> it was in that you know it was in that realm. Um, 
what I, I'll tell you one thing about about Raymond um, is that years later, I uh, I saw what I thought was a parallel. Uh, are you familiar with Bill Malden? Uh, no. M a u l d i n. Okay. Bill Malden. Uh, Bill Malden was a um, uh, an artist who uh, he was a journal a, a journalist in World War II. He was he traveled with an infantry unit in in Italy. Uh, I think about forty three, forty four, and he drew he drew all these army cartoons. His stuff is i his stuff is iconic. I suggest digging up Bill Malden's book. He put it together in a book called Up Front. Dig out that book, look at his stuff, and then look at Ray's stuff. Do you think Ray was pulling a page out of Bill's book? Or do you feel like there's just somebody that's, you know, kind of the same vibe? Well, it's a matter of it's a matter of their style, the mediums they worked in, and their style, and their kind of like uh, the, the 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 attitude. You, ha- I mean, you know, you have you have to look at both of them and compare them. But one thing I will say is that in world, you know, uh, Regis Ginn, uh Pettibone's father, was a flyboy in World War Two. He flew. I think he was he was a navigator or a bombardier on on uh, I forget what he might have been on a B twenty fours or um, actually and, and there's a possibility he may have actually done some flying with the RAF you know but um, yeah so so yeah his 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 dad had that World War Two experience sure and there's there's a lot of art that came out of World War Two that kind of. Uh, you know, really impacted the culture. So I'll, I'll, I, I'm just going to leave it at that. Check out, you know, it, 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 it's for everyone's own good to, to, to check out Bill Malden's work, especially in, in the book Up Front. Okay. It's, it's very worthwhile. Right on. There's stories where I've heard Henry Rollins talk about he just would sit and watch Raymond work, would watch him create. And the way he relayed that experience, it just sounds like it's the most interesting sort of experience, just seeing stuff just kind of come out. Yeah. Well, interesting. One, one thing about Raymond is like, um, this is just as, as an aside, when we were putting my book together, the photo book, we tried to contact Raymond to do uh, the... The, the, the wood cut on the the, the, the back side of the seven inch okay. part of the deluxe the deluxe version <clears throat> and uh, and which also would have been incorporated in the uh, I think in the um, 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 the slip cover for the book too we were trying to we were trying to do that and I thought that was a great idea we never could get in we never could contact them. Never, you know. I tried through so many different channels. Never could contact them, you know. Um, so I don't know. That would have been cool, but then I finally said, you know, we had the chance to get Ed Kaplan to say, "Hey, he's ready to do it. Let's just let's just go ahead with that," you know. Okay. No, 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 no. You know, no, no affront to Ray. You know, uh, I was, I, you know, I was, but I, I was, I was really hoping that Ray could have. Uh, you know, contributed something to it. Right. I thought that would have been cool. It would have been. I mean, he's, well, I don't know. Someone that's kind of ratcheted up that high on the on the artistic scale, I, th- I think just some things just don't work the same way as it does with everyone else, with, you know, someone that's at that, you know, kind of that, that point on the spectrum, I guess. I don't know how to put it, but. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Chuck Dukowski. Yes. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck's, um, uh, I, to me, Duke is one of the most interesting people that came out of your kind of pool of people. 
from a musician standpoint, really, really creative bass player that I don't think necessarily gets enough credit. How was it working with Duke? Uh, was it hard to contain that bass tone, you know, in the studio? Was it, you know, did you ever find yourself having to coax things out of him? Uh, it was, I mean, getting the sound was really not that difficult as long as I could be left alone to get it the way <laughs> I wanted to get it. <laughs> the problem with Chuck was that Chuck was a very intellectual. Hmm. He had, in, in, I, I think that in the studio, he had a tendency to overthink things a little too much um, and want to control things a little too much. And I didn't, and it was like, I had a hard time trying to say, no, don't, 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 get, no, 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 let's be simple, let me do it this way, and that, uh, a lot of that band, that whole band, they had these, they had these ideas as to what the recording process was, what it should be, how it should work, how it should be, should, it should be closer to what I'm hearing on the Kiss record, blah, 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 on and on and on, and I'm like, wait a minute, no. Let all that stuff go. Deal with the here and now. And I had a hard time. I had a hard time with that. There was a lot of there was a lot of conceptual head butting that went on. You know, Greg and Chuck had a tendency to try to define everything down to the last little thing. And me, I had a tendency to say, "Let's not define it. Let's just let's just do it." You know. I wanted to just—I just wanted to—I just wanted to get on the the board and ride, and I, I didn't want to have to think about what the, the the gradient pressure of the bearing in the left wheel was, as opposed to the the frequency of friction coefficient in the rear wheel. <laughs> um, that was that was the problem I had with with those two guys in most of the most of the recording sessions we did. <laughs> uh, Chuck is a Chuck is a, a much different person these days. Have you spent time with him recently? I uh I talked to him a bit in the past. I saw him out in LA when I was there in oh maybe about 7 years ago. Okay. I played a show at oh God, the Echo Curio in uh, in Echo Park, and his band played also. So, um, I, I forget I forget what the name of his band was at that point. It was him and his son and his wife and uh, oh boy. Uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's another detail that, that's out of the old man's brain. <laughs> I can look. Yeah, it. No, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, you know, we're 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 on, you know, we're on we're on speaking terms with each other. <laughs> <laughs> not that they, not that we ever weren't, but I mean, there was with, with that with that band. I mean, everybody at some point got on the the wrong side of everybody else. Mm. You know. And 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 it got it. There was a there was a tendency for it to, for for that that to be imposed upon everyone that you know to, to a point where it really didn't have to be. You know, we 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 all didn't have to be so you know uh, frown browed serious about everything right. all the time. <laughs> right. So what was the um. The, the litigation process with Unicorn Records that forced um, Black Flag to not be able to release any material for a little while. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. I mean, you when they put out the Everything Went Black album, I mean, you put up, you wrote damn near a book um, as far as the linear notes on that album. What the hell was, what was going on? It was just a, it was just a bad situation of, you know, a hot band that was on their way up and in people's eyes um, being 
kind of under this, you know, this pressure to create, to produce, to to sell more and stuff like that. And some of it was 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 self-generated by them, and some of it was self-generated by people around them, or generated by people around them. Uh, I mean, there was there was a time when like the whole punk rock thing when it crossed over the fence from being a backyard activity to being a boulevard activity and the commercial aspect was was important and something you had to think about. Uh, you know, they got waylaid by that just as much as everybody else, you know. Not everybody else has the same opportunities when you don't have the same opportunities, you have to find the opportunities. They went down exactly the wrong path with Unicorn, and and that and that almost killed the band, you know. In 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 a, in a way, it did, but they but but ultimately they persevered and, and and maintained their identity and came out the other end, you know. Why do you feel like it it did kill them? Momentum. They lost a lot of creative momentum. Okay. In that, and to 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 to, to persevere through that, it was yeah. I mean, it was it was a thing where uh, you know we we didn't have really didn't have places to live. We didn't have any money. Uh, you know, we were we were lucky to get. You know, we were lucky that when Mister Ginn would bring us over a bag full of grilled cheese sandwiches. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was it was uh, it was it was rough. You know, it was we didn't we didn't know if we were going to eat or anything or get laid or anything like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of pressure. It was a whole lot of pressure. Um, so yeah, I mean that that just kind of uh, and, and even even when you're 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 dealing with that pressure, uh, there's a certain there's a certain level of negativity that you have to deal with. And you know, I don't care what you say. If you're you know if if you're writing the greatest song in the world, the fact that you're writing the greatest song in the world when you've got an alligator. It's got its jaws on your ankle. It's going to affect your work. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what was happening. Is you know the, the, the guys had the, the the gusto to to get out of the situation and, and get back to what where they should have been. But it was, you know, and it's really unfortunate that they made that horrible decision to get involved with Unicorn. Right. So what was how I because I'm kind of unclear as to what the hell was it what was how how what was Unicorn's involvement you know how how did they get into bed with the band nice way of putting it um, <laughs> it was I think it was more that the, the band got in the bed with Unicorn uh. uh that's not a direct analogy, though. Right, I get it. Yeah, yeah uh, I get it. I got it. For, fortunately, but that might have been the motivation. Uh, no, it was just I, I, you know, I, I'll tell you something. I honestly don't know exactly how the unicorn thing came up. Greg and Greg and or Chuck could tell you exactly how it came up. All I know is that at some point they were talking about this unicorn entity, and I'm like, what? What what's going on? I mean, there was all these other chance. There was all these other companies. I know Gem, Green World, uh, you know, people to work with to kind of increase output and get manufacturing and finances in the better position to create and get their work out. Okay, uh, right. and then so, and then somehow this this unicorn thing who. I guess apparently had some connection with MCA records, blah, blah, blah. Somehow they were bamboozled into thinking that this was their best opportunity. 
and they jumped into it. I thought it was, I thought it was stupid. Um, and the rest is litigational history. Right. <laughs> it always struck me as more of um, kind of not necessarily a management um, situation, but more of like a development situation. You were getting involved with someone who was focused on uh, developing the band to a more cost-efficient and more cost-productive standpoint. And when it didn't happen, they come knocking on their do- on the door for their money. And then when you don't have any money, you know, you're screwed. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think that the motivation with Unicorn was, I think they were more of like, you know, like a, a, a room full of vultures who saw some fresher meat mm. to go after okay. that would help them pay for the expensive meat that they wanted to go after. Right. Yeah. Do you think, because um, that's when Duke left, uh, uh, Chuck Chuck left the band at that, you know, after when they reconvened, when they put out the My War album, Chuck's not on the album, though a couple of his songs are on the album. You know, do you feel like... Ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as a as a fan of the band, I always thought it was really interesting that, I mean, you're writing songs, but, I mean, Chuck was working for SST at that point. Is that the point when you think things really changed? Hmm. Hmm. Um, it, it was a big change. I'm not sure if that's when things really changed. Okay. But well, I mean, I mean, it, it, it was, it was, I mean, there was changes happening all the way through it. It's real, you know. It's it's difficult for me to pin it down. Sure. Right now, but uh, yeah, that was kind of a yeah, not really the best, the best part. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's funny. It's like the, the 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 record "My War" should not have worked. Why? Because, well, for one thing, what you just said—it was—it was the 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 the, um, the nucleus of the band was forced into a different position, um, and in a way, kind of unfairly. So there was no there was no solid rhythm section for that recording. And it was re- it was really difficult to deal with it and <clears throat> put it on a track that that made it work and at one point it started working and then it was forced into onto another track that made it work not as well again. And it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, what I'm saying is that it was, it was a total pain in the butt and I disagreed with most of the ways that that record was done, Hmm. but I had to, but I had, I had to see it through, you know, uh, naturally everyone's gone, everyone blamed me for it when it really, you know, I was just doing what it took to get it done. Sure. (laughs) I always picture in my mind uh, around that time, I mean, obviously, you know, Greg Ginn is kind of saddled with the, you know, he's the most pivotal player in the band, you know, his name comes up the most and things like that. But to me, it always seemed like it should, I don't know, the picture should have been painted more as a group effort, at least the way I saw it. I don't always look at things from a songwriting standpoint, you know, I mean, it's important the people that write the songs, but the people that play them too, I think, sometimes are just as important. And oh no, totally, no. The, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's it's a team effort. You know, even even if it's even if it's a situation where you know you've got the star, the songwriter, the front person. You know, that person is not going to be as good if they don't have a good team to work with, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, one of the classic examples I can think of is like, you know, okay, the Beatles, they were already a team, okay? 
Now, however, however, it actually, the dynamics actually worked out between those four members. They needed both George Martin and Jeff Emmerich in the studio and in the projects to work with them. Without those two people, they really weren't as viable. You know, they had like it was like one of the most perfect studio teams that ever existed. Hmm. Uh, another another example, like it's like the whole like the hero worship stuff around Elvis. <sighs> I mean, I'm so over Elvis. Elvis was great. I don't I don't agree with this thing of him being the king. Uh, what was the king was his band, Elvis as part of a band, you know, sure. with Bill Black and Scotty Moore and what was it, um, DJ Fontana. It's like, hey, without that band, he was just an interesting crooner. With that band, it was a forest fire, you know? So and he, he didn't write any of his songs, you know? But, but it was just that, that perfect chemistry that made women take their panties off and throw. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's significant, man. <laughs> uh, I can't, uh, I can't, I don't know. I can't, I don't know. I have a hard time separating Elvis's behavior off stage from his, from his music. I have a hard time with it. Him and Priscilla had a lot of issues and things like that. And I can't, I have a hard time. I just can't, I don't know. Kind of wrap up on, on Black Flag. I always picture Greg Ginn, you know, with marijuana smoke, just billowing out of every orifice on his body. Um, and just playing these sort of, manic you know guitar things you know <laughs> just like just constantly spewing out weird guitar doodles and things like that did he strike you as just kind of like a maniacal genius did he have a rhyme and a reason to what he was doing he he, he knew what he wanted and he and he was he was very headstrong he 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 he, he would get to he would Search out people who would help him um, realize his vision, okay? Right. Which is a good thing. Uh, now, in, in originally, he was not, as, as I saw him, as I experienced him, he was not a pothead originally. Uh, the pot thing came about some years down the line. To what extent? I, I can't really dis- define to what extent it was, but there was a certain point where I, I think maybe by about eighty three, eighty four, where you know he was not going to. Well, neither he or Chuck were going to, you know, uh, go on diatribes against pot. In the early days, they did. You know, they were. You know, they were a totally. Uh, you know, oh, and all oh, hippies, hippie pop, hippie, you know, they were totally on that thing. And then finally, it, it was, it's something happened where they were like, oh, the hell with it. Let's just smoke some pot. You know? right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, I, I'm, I've never really been a big fan of this stuff myself. You know, I've smoked it, but uh, didn't really, it never, never really did much for me. But, uh, yeah, so I, I you know, I, I think I think I kind of got away from uh, from SST before the big pot thing happened, or, or maybe as it was just starting to happen. Sure, the movement away from that. I mean, obviously you were. I mean, you were playing a lot of music. What'd you dive into? You know what I mean? I know that you said. You know, we talked about earlier, kind of to sort of feel reinvigorated, to feel refreshed, you know, you just start doing something else. You got to do something else because I'm burnt out on what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. What'd, you, what'd you dive into? You know, what was it that really grabbed you at that point? Well, I think about... About 85, I was... <clears throat> I was basically... I had basically separated myself 
physically from from SST and all of that stuff. And, you know, I was actually making some money. I got this, uh, one big, one thing was I bought this, <laughs> a Fostex X15 four-track cassette machine and just spent tons and tons of time just recording my own ideas, some of the music I was working on sure. and that. That that got very serious with me for a while. But the big thing though was when I when I moved to Austin, you know, I completely completely pulled the plug on the whole LA thing. And when I got to Austin, I was in a position where I had tons of time. I had tons of my own time. In LA it seemed that I, I was spending all my time, you know, on the freeway trying to get from, you know, in traffic jams, trying to get from one place to another, or working with people who had all kinds of emotional issues. And, um, yeah, there, there, was a, there was a lot a lot of personal issues I had to deal with with a lot of the people I worked with, you know. Not necessarily that they were... So, um, so dire, but, but but just a. It was a, so easy to 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 be distracted by someone who had a friend who was having trouble with one drug or another, or one alcohol or another, or you know, just just whatever, you know. It, it's. In, in, a, in an environment like like L.A., where everyone is actually just under some kind of pressure at some point, it's really difficult to tear yourself away from the everyday mental and emotional distractions that most people have to deal with. You know? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, it, 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 it's very wearing, and that that was yeah, that was wearing me out. When I moved to Austin, it was like, man. It, it completely reversed. It's like suddenly I had eighty percent of my time on my 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 own, where I whereas I had only had twenty percent of my time. So I started, and, and and one cool thing about Austin was that everybody was playing music, and it was very down to earth. And I started actively playing music again and going to like. Uh, the hoot nights at the Continental Club and and shit like that, you know. Uh, interestingly enough, some years before that, I had met Alejandro Escobedo when he was in um, uh, what was it, rank and file? Yeah, he was um, he was in rank and file, and he knew that they, they did their big debut at the whiskey, and I was at that show. And I was talking to him in, in the um, up in the dressing room after the show, and I didn't know him before then. He comes up to me and says, "You're spot, right?" And I said, "Well, yeah." He says, "Yeah." Tim Kerr is a friend of mine, and you know Tim Kerr from the Big Boys. And I was like, "Oh, you know Tim?" He said, "Oh, yeah." So we started talking about people that we knew in Austin, and I'm like, "Man, this is cool. This guy is real friendly. The rest of the band really is, and, and you know." And I'm like, "Hey, this is cool." So when I moved to Austin. Alejandro was there, and he had gone through this whole big thing with the band, the True Believers, with him and J.D. Foster and John D. Graham, and they were like the Great White Hope, and then they got waylaid. But they they kind of got unicorned by a record label and couldn't get their album out. Sure, okay. They start, so they started saying, "Well, we're rockers." But we're going to keep playing. Hey, let's take acoustic instruments out on the street and just play for the fuck of it. So, <laughs> they, you know, they would be at these, these hoot nights and they say, Hey, Spot, come on up and play. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, well, okay, you know. And whatever instrument I had that night, I'd get up and play. And, you know, there was just all kinds of stuff like that going on. And then I discovered there was like this, Irish tune session that was happening a few blocks from where I was living when I first moved there. I started going to that, and I always had been interested in that kind of music, and then I just said one, one day, I said, fuck, I'm going to take an instrument and see if I can do it. 
and then just totally fell into this whole traditional Irish music thing, which, God, I loved it and uh, put all my energy into it for a long time. Uh, I still love it. I hardly ever go near it these days, but every once in a while something comes along and reminds me of how, how much I still love that music, even though I'm not playing it that much anymore. Right. But yeah, so yeah, that, that was that was a whole, you know, that was a whole big thing, you know, uh, big, big sweep off the highway into a whole new area I hadn't let myself in before. It's refreshing, right? Oh, yeah. Is yeah. that, you know, just kind of speaking with you the last couple of hours, you you spoke more passionately about that passage of time than anything we have talked about previous to that okay <laughs> you, well go, just goes to show you <laughs> right well i well i'm just i'm just curious is do you think that do you think in your mind you associate do you have that much positivity about that period of time because it's kind of like the recovery period for a very negative period of time or is it just flat out that was an amazing period of time. Period. End of story. I, I think. I think it's both. I think that the the whole the whole recovery thing. Yeah. I mean, I knew. I knew. I knew through the early eighties that I had to do something to 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 start playing. To you know, to start actively playing music again, and uh, you know, because that's what I. That's that was like my whole motivation and. That got me that that, that that I was pursuing that got me involved with all this other stuff, you know. The, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I, I I had a I had some kind of a plan. I figured I wasn't sure what it was, and then uh, yeah, so that, that there, there was that there yeah there there, <coughs> there was that recovery from the pressure, you know. I could I could kind of. I could kind of be my own person again, and but also the fact that yes, it was it was an amazing time. It was an amazing time in Austin, uh, uh, you know, and it was uh, and, and and plus like 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 in, in, in Irish and Celtic music, it was really an amazing time then. The same thing was happening with that as it happened in the early 60s with folk music. Hmm. Uh, it was, it was okay. like, a, it was like a, a, a particular culture kind of reclaiming themselves musically and saying, no, we're not bluegrass. No, we're not old, you know, old style. We're, we're, we're Irish. Yeah. And this is what, and, and, and this is what we do. And, and, and there were like all these, all these players coming out of all these families all across the country and festivals happening. And, uh, you know, the, the, these, these tune sessions where just a whole bunch of people to sit and play all night long. It was just, God, it was just such a, it, it, it was wonderful, you know, just, I, I lived for it. I wasn't getting it, I wasn't getting that in the rock and roll world. I wanted that in the rock and roll world. I didn't get it, but I got it there. And, uh, you know, and it, 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 it went its course. You know, I, I kind of stopped because there was a point where <clears throat> I was doing it so seriously, there was a certain pressure that I was under, and it finally got to where, it was. I, I, I had to just walk away from it. You know. Mm. Darn. <laughs> Is there a pattern to that? That there comes a point where it just reaches critical mass, and it's no longer a good thing. It seems. Yeah, it seems like with everything. Yeah, at, at some point, you have to either you have to either redefine what you're doing to continue with it. If you if if you want to be happy with it, or you have to just stop and find something new, uh, you know, and and go from there. You know, you know there there was there was one thing about the misfits we never got close to. I would that, love I would love to hear it. What is it? Um, 
when I was in New Jersey working with them, there was this guy who lived across the street from um, uh, from Doyle. Okay. You know, I was basically kind of at, at that point living in you know living in Doyle's basement. Um, <clears throat> but this guy who lived across the street, George Germain. <laughs> Did that name come up? <laughs> I've heard it a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I hung out with that guy a lot. He was a real interesting guy. Uh, worked on some of the Misfits' early stuff. And I think that for because of, um, I, I don't know, social security or some kind of dis- disability payments he was getting, he couldn't reveal that he was doing this work. And I, I, I think that was the story. So... Probably most people don't know anything about this guy. This was like, I mean, this this is at least thirty years ago. This was happening, um, so I doubt if it, it would be a huge issue anymore. But yeah, I, I, I went to a couple of studios with him. He was an engineer, and we would sit up and talk about audio and the Misfits and the guys in the Misfits all the time. And he was into. The guy loved guns. You know, I'd go over to his house, he'd be sitting there watching television, playing with a forty-four Magnum revolver while he's doing it, you know, and, you know, it didn't bother me at all. But, I mean, he was a kind of, he was a kind of gun lover that nowadays would, would just absolutely hate all these gun activists because he would go, ah, those are just slobs. <laughs> you know, but I, I'm pretty sure that he was the guy who showed me the right way to dismantle, clean, and reassemble a, a Colt semi-automatic pistol. Um, that apparently is something that mo- that 99% of the people who own those guns don't know how to do, and it's why a, a, a Probably part of the reason why <laughs> they shoot themselves and their family members right. <laughs> because they're doing this up the wrong way. And uh oh, I didn't mean this. I didn't know it was loaded. <laughs> but yeah, no, he um, no, he was a real interesting guy. He he gave me before I went back to California. He gave me twenty bucks. He wanted me to go to this certain. Mexican food place to buy a certain salsa that he had heard all about and send it to him. And unfortunately, when I got back to California, things were just ridiculous, and I don't know where that 20 bucks went, and I never was able to (sighs) fulfill his wish. And I felt horrible about it. You know, and I still feel horrible about it today, and I don't know if he's still around, but if he is still around, you know, I would like him to know that, hey, I let you down. I feel horrible about it. <laughs> you know? Trying to make good on a promise, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just, it, I mean, it's as easy as, as easy a thing as it should have been, you know, getting back, getting back in to, to SST suddenly... You know, it was like I, 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 some emergency. I had to use that twenty bucks, and I couldn't get it back. And it, it you know, it, it's it's the typical, you know, the typical bullshit that keeps you from doing the right thing that you totally intended to do for a friend, but you know, life crashes around you and you can't get it done immediately, and then it just kind of falls by the wayside. Right. Uh, huh. But yeah, I don't, I, mean, see, I, see, I don't know. I know that the Misfits, they did some kind of book. I don't know if he ever, that guy's name ever came up or anything. But he, he was a really, really cool, interesting guy. What's next? What's on the horizon for Spot? Oh, no. Uh, uh, I've been playing with a drummer on kind of a regular basis. 
we've played a couple of shows here, and they're just the two of us. I really need, I, I really want a bass player, but there's, it, it's been, okay, Sheboygan has no music scene here, so it's really difficult to find uh, musicians. Um, but that's, that's what I want. I'm trying to formulate a plan where either that, that, you know, even if I don't find the bass player, maybe what I need to do is go into the studio with this drummer and just record like guitar and drums or bass and drums and then overdub from there. Oh, that's one thing that I'm working on, you know, and it, it, it's both some of my own original stuff and some stuff where it's just original uh, arrangements of, 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 of other people's stuff, you know, but it's just stuff that's just way fun to play. There's that. Um, you know, like I said, there's the, you know, okay, the photo book, I had started working on that concept years before it came out. I was originally trying to trying to put together a, a text-based book that basically would be talking about all the stuff we talked about sure. with photo. Right. That didn't happen. I, I approached a few publishers. Nobody had the enthusiasm, or, the, or or just wasn't the right time until these guys saw some of the photos and they thought, "Wow, we could do a photo book." Wasn't what I wanted to do, but I said, this is good. I, I, since it, it happened through people who I knew and we had mutual friends in that, I said, okay, this is it. And there was, there was a lot of enthusiasm about it, enthusiasm and commitment. So I went with that. Uh, coming back around, it's like I've been trying to go back to the original idea of the, the text space. See, I, al I already had a whole bunch of it written at the time, and there's still more to write. Uh, I'm getting ready to approach some publishers about it. Uh, I got, I mean, I've, I've got some of my own photos. I've got tons of recordings that, and outtakes people have never heard. Uh, I've got... Uh, Glenn Friedman said he'd be happy to contribute some photos to it. Mm, okay. I've got access to, I'll probably have access to um, Naomi Peterson's archives. You know, she was like the SFT photographer. Sure. Uh, did, did, you, did you read the, uh, the book, Enter Naomi, that Carducci wrote? No, I've never looked at it. I'm more familiar with Glenn's stuff. Um, the, what is it, uh, Fuck Your Heroes and Fuck You Too, I think. But no, I'm not not nearly as familiar with Naomi's stuff. Okay, well, the book that, the Enter Naomi book is not a photography book. It's a story about her. That's actually one of the best um, histories of, of punk rock and L.A. punk rock and, 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 and SST you know, written from, written from the inside. I recommend reading it. It's a, it's a really, it's, a, it's, it's in depth. There's a lot of information about this woman and it's really, really, it's really, really sad. She died so young. Uh, she, she, you know, she, she had, she had some serious emotional problems that I guess nobody could had a, nobody knew how to, steer her away from it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, but anyway, no, she, but, but she's, yeah, but she's got a bunch of photos that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have access to because, you know, there was a point where I didn't have time to take photos anymore. So I just had to be in the studio. So at least I'll have, <laughs> you know, something else to, to help illustrate that book. So, right. yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's a project I want to get, I want to get underway. And then there's a whole other bunch of things I've been working on, editing manuscripts and that, and had some, I, well, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, work, I'm, I'm getting ready to 
uh, working with one author on his book, getting ready to put it make make it an audio book. Okay, gotcha. You know, and I'm committed to I'm committed to that project, and that's been the uh, that's been the thing that I've been editing feverishly for the past month. Okay. That was the, uh, that was the big one you were talking about the other day, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I finally got I I, I got past the most difficult part of it uh, just the other day, which is why I can talk to you today. <laughs> but Perfect. but now I've got a, a it, it's like a whole bunch of it has to be put into script form, and um, I'm hoping that this winter we actually. You know, we actually record the damn thing. I don't know. Spot, you have a story <laughs> that should probably be, I, I don't know, multiple trilogies over in cinematic form. Um, hmm. I think that I just, I love hearing about this stuff. I love talking about it. I love hearing, you know, firsthand accounts and things like that. I think it's, it's important, I think. That's the only word I can think to describe it. It is important stuff. Spot, I can't, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for doing this. Like I said earlier, this stuff, uh, this stuff's important to a lot of people, and I think it's whenever you can get a firsthand account of just whatever, it's it's amazing, especially for people that are passionate about that that genre of music and that time period, and you know that subculture and things like that. You're a very, very, very pivotal player in that stuff. So, thank you, well, man. Sure. See you in the, in the, I'll see you down that road. <laughs> right on. Thanks, man. Your eyes are filled with ridiculous With every kiss I take blood on your lips, I feel.